Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. It's Monday, November 14th. I'm Jocelyn Mesa Miranda. Thanks for joining us. A researcher in our region is looking at a new way to grow vegetables and flowers at home. But as KUNC's Emma Vandenaide reports, it might be difficult for some to actually do. Jennifer Busolo is a gardener, but her crops aren't on the ground. They're on the roof of one of the Colorado State University buildings in downtown Denver. So these are about providing additional benefits in places that are often unused. Busolo is conducting research on rooftop agrivoltaics. That's a fancy way of saying how plants grow under solar panels on rooftops. Her fascination started 15 years ago, but it wasn't intentional. I was very frustrated to see that another scientist had put up a solar array at the edge of my research plots. But over the next two or three growing seasons, I saw an incredible response. It's due to their synergy. On their own, solar panels and plants get too hot on rooftops in our region. But the plants, through evaporation, help cool off the panels and vice versa. We're basically providing the same protection as a slightly cloudy day would. One way to see how a plant is doing is to measure its chlorophyll. It's a substance that makes plants green and helps them absorb sunlight to grow. She and her grad students use a thermometer-like tool to measure it. It's called a chlorophyll fluorometer. Measure this one again and see if it's still low. Ooh, that's getting higher. I think the last one was in the 50s, if I remember right. This is 61.8. Their tests show that plants growing under or near solar panels survived longer and retained more moisture, using less water overall. Leafy greens are especially promising. Other states in our region are utilizing green roofs, too. The Latter-day Saints Conference Center in Utah has a green roof that is over 200,000 square feet. In Idaho, there's one on top of a hospital. Busolo is excited about all this urban rooftop potential. Does the rooftop get used for much besides storage? No. So to me, it would be absolutely wonderful to see scenarios where we're contributing to a lot of the things we need as a human society. She's not the only one who feels this way. Back in 2017, Denver voters passed an initiative to increase green roofs. It aimed to reduce urban heat islands and greenhouse gas emissions. But Amanda Weston with the city of Denver says... Some officials were worried about the ordinance. If the building can't structurally hold the weight, it's not something that we can even approve and say that that's okay to do because it's not safe. And it was just really expensive. Soon after, the city broadened the ordinance. It gave building owners more options, like purchasing off-site solar or paying into a green building fund. We don't want to just say, here's the rules, deal with it. Currently, the city reports that 28 buildings have on-site green spaces. But green space could mean trees and shrubs, not always a full roof with solar panels and plants. The majority of those projects are not utilizing vegetated roof area for the green building ordinance compliance option. 
That's Jeff Steckline, a Denver-based landscape architect. He says the ordinance might call for greenery on 60% of a rooftop, leaving little space. So clients often choose easier options. There's other compliance options that often make more sense than just creating additional vegetated roof area. Even if a green roof gets installed, he worries about the long-term success. Any vegetated assembly requires things like irrigation, long-term maintenance. And so the viability of these systems is challenged by just where we are in our climate. Despite these challenges, Busolo hopes more people embrace the idea of green roofs to support a better environment. If we can bring a little bit of life back into that city, choose to use the about the only remaining space in our cities left, we can really make an incredible impact. She plans to continue her research on solar panels and plants, so Denver and other rooftops in our region could be a bit greener in the future. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Emma Vandenindy. There's nothing quite as refreshing as a cold glass of water straight from the tap, but it takes a lot of work to make your water clean and tasty. City water providers from all over the Mountain West put their supplies to the test at a recent event in Colorado. KUNC's Alex Hager was invited to judge the taste test and file this report. I'll be honest, I don't know a lick about judging water. I'm at best an amateur water enjoyer, but here in the middle of a bustling conference hall at a big hotel in the ski resort town of Keystone, our panel is at a long table as a crowd gathers to watch the tasting. Before we take a sip, I thought I'd ask the judge next to me for some of his expert advice. My name is Victor Sam. I'm an engineer at Stantec, which is a consulting firm. Um, I actually did my master's at Colorado State University on um, taste and odor. What are you looking for? Like, what are, we, what, are we, what are we taking notes on? What are we noticing when we're tasting today? Well, overall, you just want to have a pleasant experience. So does it quench you? Does it taste good to you? You, you can judge it from maybe a mouthfeel, if it's slippery or is it grainy. So it's kind of like wine tasting. The organizers give us a taste and odor wheel, and it lists all the different notes and flavors you might pick up from a glass of H2O, chlorine and bleach, but it's also got a lot of the same things that people say about wine. Fruity, grassy, earthy. But that might not be much help to me and the other judge seated to my left. Colin Chung is on the board of the American Waterworks Association. His group is running the conference and the tap water competition, but like me, Chung is no scientist. They're all looking very, very good to me. Making me thirsty at the moment, actually. What was that you said about wine earlier? <laughs> I can't tell the difference between a $10 bottle of wine and a $500 bottle of wine. They all taste good to me. <laughs> and the tap water in front of us is not wine. But it's being treated with the same ceremony and elegance as a nice Cabernet. The organizers pour water from heavy bottles into stemmed glasses before handing samples from cities large and small to each of the judges, who are grading them on a scale of 1 to 10. All right, so I've had my first pass of the water here. I think it's time to go through and start getting some numbers down. The first one, not going to lie, little chemically, getting some chlorine notes. So I'm going to give that one a 5. And I do remember some more pleasant-tasting waters down the line. So we'll start there. 
Are you noticing, uh, after we've looked at this wheel of flavors, and I said maybe you'll taste cork or grass or citrus, have you picked up on any of that? <laughs> uh, not, not that advanced level here. I don't. I, the sweetness I can't taste. Sour, bitter, maybe the bitter. I don't know. But for someone who does know, let's turn back to our expert, Victor Sam. First thing that stands out is actually a lot of all of them taste very different. And the second one is, even though they're all different, there's two of them that give me the same feeling, just one more intense. I called that one rubbery. Does that sound right to you? I love that word. Yes. Yes. After all, it isn't really an exact science. Just ask one of the other judges, Sushira Pochuraju. She's an environmental engineer who the MC called Dr. Taste and Odor. Taste and odor is really subjective to people. So, like, people have differing opinions, right? Sitting next to each other, me and my partners have different opinions. Pochiraju literally has a PhD in water taste and odor, but she says that's not necessary to figure out which water tastes good to you. After plenty of hydration and a little deliberation, the organizers tally up the scores from the panel of seven judges. The champion? Grand Junction, Colorado. After the dust settled, I caught up with Amy Brown with the Winning City's Water Department. It feels awesome. Never win anything. (laughs) And why do you think that people love Grand Junction water so much? Because it comes straight from the Grand Mesa, the world's largest flat top mountain. Yeah. So, yeah, gorgeous place. Great water. Next up, all the regional winners take their water to the national championships, where they'll square off against some of the best water in North America to see whose taps are the tastiest. In Keystone, Colorado, I'm Alex Hager. This story is part of ongoing coverage of the water in the West, produced by KUNC and supported by the Walton Family Foundation. A research team at Colorado State University is using pedometers to monitor the health activity of dairy cattle. The goal is to improve milk quality while maintaining a cost-effective solution for local farmers. Dr. Pablo Pinedo is an associate professor in CSU's Department of Animal Science and is heading up the study. I recently spoke with him to learn more about their research. Before we get to the science, let's talk about the problem. One of the most common and deadly diseases in the dairy industry is mastitis. Can you tell me what it is and how it affects cows? Yeah, so mastitis is is an inflammation of the other, you know, the mammary gland in dairy cows. And it's it's a very common disease. Could go from, you know, just slight symptoms to severe conditions. So it's, it's a problem that has been in the dairy industry for many years. Normally, it's related to infection with bacteria, but also could be caused for a trauma, for example. So, yeah, it's, it remains a very significant topic for, for us. What are the current treatment options for mastitis, and how will your research address them? So, there are different treatments. Uh, one, to fight the infection would be to give antibiotics. Uh, as you know, we are working in this case with organic dairies where they cannot use antibiotics for treating the cows. So it, it becomes a challenge when you have these cows that are sick and you want to help them, but you cannot use antibiotics. So there are some other strategies. For example, you can milk the cow more often, remove the milk 
from the other, you know, many times to the day, and that will help the cows. But as we are limited in these treatments, uh, the focus of this research is to try to prevent disease. So we are going to really focusing, uh, be focusing on catching these cows that may get sick soon or may be starting uh, some infections so we can help them uh, timely. Let's dive into the details of the study. Your team is working with researchers at five other universities across the country. You all were awarded a $3 million grant from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. How will the funding be used and what's the goal? So we have six universities with eight researchers and we are going to be focusing on five different objectives. But the overall goal would be to identify some strategies that could help on preventing and controlling mastitis. But just in just uh, kind of an overview of the of the five objectives, we wanna first provide a extension program to help producers to understand better how to control mastitis. Then we wanna measure how uh, big is the impact of disease in these organic farms across the country. We wanna. Um, develop some strategies that we can use to prevent disease. And this could be, for example, the way we dry the cows um, at the end of the lactation. We are going to be focusing on that. Um, and finally, I think very interesting, we are going to try to understand how comfort and behavior are connected to mastitis. We have the opportunity to work with these uh, sensors in the cows. We have about 5,000 cows with these pedometers in one leg. And we can know what is the what is the cow doing during the whole day. So you know if she's lying enough, she's resting enough, is she walking, is she going to eat. So we want to understand how the comfort component of the farm will help the cows to avoid disease, or how we can find cows that are starting to get sick through these changes in behavior. As you mentioned, part of the study will involve monitoring pedometers worn by the cows. Can you tell me more about how these monitors will work? Some uh, sensors that are prepared for the cows, and you know you can use these ones that are in the feet of the cow, and they will measure mostly how many steps is she walking. They will measure if she's uh, lying, if she's resting, if she's moving. We have also device that can be uh, placed, for example, in a ear or in, in the neck, in a collar, and with that you can measure uh, how much time the cow is eating, for example, or how much time she's ruminating, which are super important parameters to see if the cow is healthy. So, you know, uh, the one in the feet has some advantages. You know how, how much she's resting, she's moving. Uh, the one in the in the neck would be interesting to know how she's eating, how she's relaxing. So I think the best is a combination of both. And, you know, each of them will provide you some specific parameters. When is the study expected to be completed? Yeah, so we are uh, studying now, and this is a four-year study. I, I, I think that the extension component will start right now, so we can start communicating with farmers and trying to interact with them. And then the experiments that will be completed here in Colorado will be also starting in this uh, coming spring. But we will go all the way to four years to, you know, to complete all the activities. It's, it's, a, it's a good number of experiments, uh, that analysis, so it will be taking time. But we will starting to deliver, uh, you know, our results as soon as we got. So I would say within one year, we should have the first uh, results from the initial experiments. 
and those will be delivered to the farmers. How will the results of the study improve the cow's milk production, and how will this benefit people who drink milk? Yeah, uh, you know, mastitis will affect milk production, will affect milk quality. So if we can reduce this problem, we will have more milk, will be more uh, affordable milk. You know, you will reduce the expenses and also better quality product. So that, that will benefit uh, people. In the farm also, um, you, you never want to have a cow that is sick. So that's a huge benefit for people working with the cows. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me today, Pablo. Well, I, I, I'd like to thank you for reaching us. That's all for today on Colorado Edition. Thanks for listening. The Colorado Edition podcast is posted every Friday. Just hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If there's a story you'd like to hear, send us an email at coloradoedition at kunc.org. Our theme music is composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Other music in the show by Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Jocelyn Mesa Miranda.